Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Lacey Reddix to the show. Lacey has a background in civil engineering with a concentration in water resources and environmental engineering. She is the CEO and founder of Olukun Minerals, a startup focused on improving the water quality of brine wastewaters by filtering out metals and minerals that can be used for more productive applications. She is passionate about finding solutions that improve human environmental interactions and increase clean water access for vulnerable communities. Lacey, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Raj. Thank you for having me. Lacey, thank you for joining us. Lacey, I'd like to start with asking, who is Keisha Powell and how has she influenced your life? (laughs) That's so funny. So uh, Keisha Powell was my first boss. She was the first uh, woman public works director for the city of Jackson. Um, She also was a commissioner of watershed management in the city of Atlanta, where she was my boss as well. And she was also the first um, boss that looked like me. Uh, She was a woman of color, civil engineer, um, and working in the water space. And not only was she a a mentor um, in in the workspace, but she also just encouraged me to be a leader and and also just showed me the importance of the work that we were doing and why uh, the water sector was so important. How has she influenced your leadership style? I think she influenced my leadership style in the sense of realizing that um, being a servant leader was the most important in, in a number of different ways she influenced me. But I think her, the way that she led by example, and also this idea of, um, making sure that we took everybody's voice into account accountability or, or just in general, just being somebody that, um, could be a voice for a number of different people, I think was really important. And, I will forever be indebted to her because of that. And I hope she has the opportunity to listen to this and and realize um, how much of an impact she's been um, on my life. Can you give an example of how you use servant leadership in your current role? Really, it's more so about um, leading by example, I think is like what we need to really focus on. Um, Being somebody that looks at how the work that we're doing is impacting not only our, our target customer, but also just those who are... Um, most affected by the decisions that we're making, Uh, people in vulnerable communities, people who uh, may not have access to what we're doing. We're in the water sector, um, trying to make desalination more sustainable. So how does that affect the communities that we're serving? How does that affect people who currently can't afford the water that they have access to? Um, There's a number of different ways I think that it it comes into play, but I really, it it comes in the the biggest goal of of servant leadership, I think is to, um, realize that everyone is going to be affected, not only uh, the people that you're targeting to, but um, more so the larger community. Why do you think we, broadly speaking, don't pay more attention to water issues? I think because it's not sexy or it's not, it's not something that people 
um, view as uh, interesting, I would say. I think we do when it becomes a serious issue. Flint, Michigan's um, water crisis, I think, is a, a primary example of um, something scary that people then paid attention to. Um, but outside of that, I think people take for granted the fact that water, I, th- I think they think that water is always going to be here. They also um, don't realize that um, water is heavily subsidized currently. So even though the price of water is going up, it's still lower than what the cost of actual water is. And if we were to ever course correct that, then we would see we would see a lot of issues later on. Um, and so what I, I think needs to happen is we need to think about the fact that um, water is a critical resource. It is vital f- for life. Um, and we just need to value it um, more than what I think we currently are doing. When I was doing research for this conversation, I came up with a perhaps a wild and hairy idea. I want to run it by you real time. What do you think of a monthly national water rationing day? What do I think of a monthly water rationing day? It seems like we, we kind of do that almost because of um, the amount of droughts that we go through. We're, we've we've gone through um, a number of times in our history, at least in, in the South. I know Atlanta has done this in the, in the past where uh, they've tried to um, allow people or they've, they've encouraged people to ration their water um, in, in drought situations. So I assume that you would want something similar to that. Is that correct? Or what would you be thinking of? So... I watched an interview that you were on with a gentleman named Tom Ferguson, I believe. Yes. And, you know, he mentioned that we kind of just go along, go along, go along, and all of a sudden we need to pay attention because water didn't come out the tap. And I was thinking of a way to perhaps draw more people's attention to this issue around water. Got it. I mean, I think that one, I mean, that could take fire. That could be something that we end up doing. Um, I, I, I would support it if, if we did it. <laughs> I would say that. You know, I'm thinking of it like a, you know, tornado drill, fire drill, et cetera. These things that we have, you know, my kids are in school, for example, every once in a while they have a fire drill, they have a tornado drill because we're in Texas. But how do you draw more attention to these issues or perhaps prepare people to be able to cope with what seems to be these, um, these problems that we will ultimately face in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think that is one way. I, I, I think that we can think a little bit more too outside the box on, um, how do we value whether it's rationing water or if we for a day um, price water at what it's actually valued at <laughs> or how much it actually costs um, so that people can be aware of and, and be possibly grateful for how much they're currently spending. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there's a, a number of different ways I think that we could be potentially creative around um, showing the value, the true value and the importance of water. Well, speaking of outside the box and being creative, can you give the audience an overview of Olican Minerals and your role at the organization? Yes. So essentially what we do at, or why Olican Minerals was founded, we were looking to uh, create a, or make desalination more sustainable. Desalination is the process of turning seawater to freshwater or saltwater to freshwater. Uh, in that process, uh, you take out a number of different salts, which then um, that salt waste uh, is known as brine. Um, and that brine is usually diluted and goes back into the ocean or is disposed of in some kind of way. What we're doing is we want to take that brine waste, extract the salts, and then use those salts for a number of different applications. Uh, what we found is there are valuable metals and minerals that are in those in that brine waste stream that are needed for a number of different supply chains. 
Um, and so what we're doing is trying to solve two problems at the same time. We're trying to make desalination more sustainable or just in general um, clean up briny wastewaters and then also um, make countries and, and municipalities more self-reliant and able to source minerals that can be used in industries uh, closer to home. Can you give some examples of what minerals you can extract? Yeah, so I think a, a number one would be magnesium chloride is one that's um, really popular. When we first started the company, we were looking at extracting magnesium chloride for road salty icing. The reason being, um, when I was doing my initial research, found I found that um, the salts that were used to de-ice roads in the Northeast, there was a salt shortage um, causing a lot of a lot of municipalities not to be able to de-ice their roads and that it was a two to $3 billion industry uh, to, or they were spending two to $3 billion a year on these road salty icing agents. Also found that um, it was causing a lot of corrosion uh, to the streets or the traditional salts were, and um, it wasn't as beneficial to the environment. Uh, magnesium chloride and potassium chloride were found to be less corrosive and more envi- environmentally friendly. So that was the first thing that we were looking at. What we also found was magnesium chloride was used um, in the aluminum alloy industry. So it was basically this uh, raw material that could help with um, the electronics industry, basically. And a shortage of magnesium chloride in Europe um, this past November was the direct re- directly related to the increase in the price of electronics in, in the EU. So what I found was that, you know, magnesium chloride is one example of, um, of a salt that we could extract um, that could be used in a number of applications. Outside of that, potassium can be extracted to create potash, which is used for fertilizers. Um, we also can do um, calcium extraction, which can then be converted later on to uh, calcium carbonate, which is used in a number of different industries, including the automobile manufacturing industry. Um, and speaking of automobile manufacturing, um, even though lithium is not necessarily found in desalination um, brining wastewaters, it is found in geothermal brines and a number of other brine sources. And um, it's our process could potentially help with um, the lithium battery supply chain as well. What is geothermal brine? <laughs> uh, it's basically, I don't know if you're familiar with the Salton Sea or, or what's going on in the Salton Sea project, but um, it's essentially a brine that or a salty, heated salty water that comes from, um, from underground um, and, and by itself kind of naturally um, surfaces or bubbles up to the surface. And so it's, it's basically the same thing. Any kind of brine is um, um, a water source that's um, with a high salt concentration. Um, geothermal just goes back to the fact that it's a heated water source. Is the Salton Sea Project the Lithium Lake Project in California? Yes. Then I have heard of it. So it seems like you would need huge volumes of these minerals to be able to, to help the supply chain. Is there that much potential out there in brine water? Yeah. So for example, um, Poseidon Water, which is a San Diego-based, um, or Car- it's in Carlsbad, California. Um, it's the largest desalination facility on, in the Western Hemisphere. And it produces, or, or it pumps in about 100 million gallons per day of water, seawater, and then 50 million gallons per day is brine. 50 million gallons per day gets converted into fresh water that goes into um, the drinking water for, um, I think, 15% of the population in San Diego. And then 50, 
50 million gallons per day is brine that needs to be diluted before it goes back into the ocean. Um, so that's, that's just one example. That's one, one plant. Mind you, it's the largest one in the Western hemisphere, but there is a, a number, there's a, a large amount of brine that's being produced. Um, and so there's a large potential for us to utilize that as a source to source minerals. And what does your facility look like? <laughs> well, right now it's um, a prototype um, that exists at a lab. Um, so it's very small. And so we're still in research and development phase. Uh, what it would uh, potentially look like in the future is uh, two things. One, it could be a um, an addition to an existing um, desalination facility where water is pumped into this column. Um, and that column basically is able to um, filter out multiple salts at the same time and through that column um, sort those salts and then we can extract it from there. Um, outside of that, so that's one where it's connected to the desalination facility. The second would be an actual kind of warehouse space uh, where that brine waste is brought in and it still goes through the same column, but um, we can source a number of different waste streams at the same time as opposed to just relying on on one source. So how did you come up with the idea for Olukun Minerals? So I originally looked at um, the idea, or not the idea, but I, I looked at uh, desalination. I was looking at the water problem in California, um, and I was trying to figure out how do we increase the amount of water that we can um, get in California. And um, just like for some from background knowledge, only or less than 2% of all the world's water is fresh water and available for us to use. So 3% is actual fresh water. 1% of that 3% is um, in the ice caps. Um, so it's not available necessarily for us. And then out of that uh, less than 2%, um, only about 30% of 1% of the water is um, in fresh lakes and water that's above the surface or um, in underground wells that are still um, high enough for us to access. So, and also too, we are, our population has grown, I think four times in the last hundred years, we were about 2 billion people in 1927 and we're about 7.9 billion people today. So all of those people are living off of um, a very small percentage of water. What I was thinking was around this 90, 97% of the world's water is seawater how do we access that seawater in a way that we can just increase the amount of uh, water that people have access to? Um, desalination is a way to do that, but there's obstacles around desalination. So I, essentially, I was looking at how do we get over those obstacles? Um, and so then I started looking at and researching what um, what is the composite of those minerals um, or the composite of the salts that we take out, and then what are the use cases for those salts? Um, and then from there, um, really just got lucky with um, being able to partner with um, a national lab that was doing research in this space and had recently done a patent around a technology that could filter out these salts. Um, and so that's kind of how we were able to move forward as a business. You mentioned at the top of the interview about not being a sexy industry. Why were you doing so much research or what was your aha moment? I think for me, so I, I, I think we mentioned too with um, my mentor, at Ms. Power. She was, I was working in the city of Jackson, which is where I'm from and working in Jackson, Mississippi, as well as Atlanta. Um, I got to be, um, I got to see firsthand the effects of water infrastructure on communities. And 
how the lack of water access affected people's lives and how they felt forgotten, how they felt um, like it, it affected their dignity, it affected their pride. Um, and, it, and it really drove home to me the importance of solving this issue that people just don't even think about. Um, and so I think that is where the seed of doing something around water infrastructure started. Um, and then from there, I started thinking about the fact that if we didn't solve the supply chain issues, we'll see more conflict on, on both sides. If we don't have enough water, you'll see a lot of a lot more conflict happening, um, water wars happening, um, conflicts between countries. But also, too, on the supply chain side, um, as we have more conflict and, and climate change is just going to exacerbate the conflicts that we do have, uh, we'll want to be less reliant on other countries to have resources. And so what I also found was a number of different um, minerals or, or uh, chemicals were becoming a security threat or a national security issue if we weren't able to source them. And so I, I, I saw these two problems and I was figuring out that we could connect those two problems together. And that's kind of what made me most excited about um, what I was doing. It was the aha moment that if we could solve for both these problems, we could alleviate so much pain um, and so much potential conflict in the future. And I think that's what drives me to continue to do the work that I do, because I see the importance, not only, yes, you know, there is a financial benefit of doing this, but um, the fact that we could just make people's lives better in ways that they don't even fully understand at this moment, I think that's kind of what drives me to do the work that I'm doing. Now, I mentioned my crazy idea earlier, but how do you think or what would you do to draw more attention to the water crisis? I think I, I feel like people need to, in, in any industry, I think what people really understand is um, the dollars or the bottom line. Um, I don't want to necessarily increase the cost of water, but I want people to understand what the value of that water actually is. Um, and I don't know if there's a way to do that without, um, without like, um, bringing other people or or bringing other people a lot of, um, unnecessary pain and, um, strife because of the fact that they can't pay for the, the water now that it's at its current price or at its, its potential price. And so I do think that we need to look at how do we make water, how do we price water where it is actually the value that it is for society, um, but still be able to um, give that to communities in a way that um, we don't make it hard for them to live. Like Goldman Sachs said that water is is the petroleum of the 21st century, but the difference between petroleum and water is that you can live without petroleum. So those are two, I think that's something that we need to just drive home is that um, we cannot live without water, but at the same time, we'll see the price of that water going up or the value of that water going up as climate change becomes a bigger and bigger issue in the future. Well, speaking of the cost of water going up, can you share what the concept of outsourcing or virtual water is? Yes. So essentially what virtual water is, is um, it's the goods it's the uh, the water that's associated with the goods that people may purchase an example would be if another country decides that um, another country that doesn't have um, access to or, or doesn't have a lot of water or, or their own rainfall in the country so it's a very dry region um, they might instead of growing 
a crop in their region, they might decide to pay for that crop to be um, brought in-house. And so basically they're paying for the water that's associated with growing that crop by um, outsourcing it to somebody else or, or outsourcing it to, or getting that crop from, from somewhere else. Therefore, they're kind of um, not allowing their, you know, the precious water that they have to go towards that crop. They can use that water that, that comes into their region for something else. So I want listeners to really understand the impact of this. Can you perhaps share an example of where that might already be happening? Yes. Yeah, so I, an example I've given, I, I believe in, in a, a previous talk too, I, I gave the example of uh, kind of what's going on in uh, the Middle East in California, basically, and the idea of um, growing uh, crops that are needed for um, cattle um, here in California, and then shipping that shipping those alfalfa sprouts or that for that um, that crop to the Middle East in order for the cattle to eat it. And so this goes back to you know why how is um, meat production or the production of beef uh, related to the climate change or to to climate problems. Um, the idea that a lot of agriculture goes back to raising um, cattle or livestock. Um, that's kind of like a we're, we're not using our agriculture as sufficiently as we could. That's an example of that. Uh, but also to the issue with um, Middle East um, purchasing their crops in California and why that could be potentially um, been or detrimental is California is also a dry region. And so if California has a drought or isn't able to produce the crops that they have promised another country, they can then be, there could be a potential conflict there. Also too, you know, there, there's the potential for other countries to buy land in California. And once you buy land, you have access to, you know, mineral rights, water rights. So water that might be underground under that land. The issue with that is um, the amount of water that people have said is under, I mean, how do you, how do you um, cut off who gets access to that water and who doesn't? Um, and the water underneath the ground is still limited as well. Um, so it, it, it can all, it can be a bigger problem later or moving forward or, or in, in the future if we can't figure out how to, um, how to handle that problem now. I don't know the answer to this, but right now in Texas, I can tell you sometimes when you buy land, you have access to mineral rights and other times you don't. Do you know if there is a way to limit those ac- limit that access? Yeah, so they're actually trying to um, kind of reverse the promises that they've made around water access or mineral water rights in California. Um, I know that there is a lot of backlash on that. I do think that there could be this. This could be negotiated when you purchase land, um, but I'll stop there because I don't know the details. So I'm sure that there's a lot that I could speak on that I, I'm not going to at this moment because. Um, I don't want to give misinformation, um, but I, I do believe that it can be negotiated. I appreciate that. It just seems to me it could become a national security issue. Yes. So you've been on this journey a few years now. What are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself? Oh, I think what I have learned about myself leading up to this is that I think it's really important for me to uh, be a part of something that's larger than myself, which is funny because I know that this is... Um, podcast is called Bigger Than Us. Um, 
I think it's really important for me to feel like I am contributing back to um, society in a way that's going to impact people's lives in a positive way. Um, and I think that's what drives me more than money, more than, you know, acclaim or, or, or getting any kind of credit for what we're doing. I think it's just, I, I think I am very deeply rooted in how can we do the right thing and how can we alleviate pain for as many people as possible. Why is contributing back so important to you? I wish I knew that answer. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why that is so important to me. Um, I, have, I have no idea. I, I know that, you know, my, I feel like my family has all been people who have um, tried to contribute in some kind of way. Both my parents were physicians. My All four of my grandparents were teachers. Um, and I think it was just, imp- I, I think it's, it's, it's a way to contribute to your community in a way that I think that's where our, my pride comes from, I guess, in a way. Um, my self-worth and value, I guess, comes from that as well. Um, but no, I, I think it's just, it's the right thing to do. And I think I'm just really driven by trying to do the right thing. I have a lot of physician friends and I find them to be very risk averse. Um, when you took this entrepreneurial leap, how did your parents respond? <laughs> um, not, it's so funny you say that. I think they were very concerned <laughs> with um, <laughs> my, my willingness to leave a very like comfortable um, life, you know, with a you know job that I was doing pretty well, and um, to leave that all behind to do something that felt like very unknown and, and also felt like um, like it felt like the problem was so large. Like, could I really tackle this problem? Um, and I I will say this to anybody who's listening to who's thinking about starting a company. I think it started with like a um, a gut feeling that this was what I needed to do. Um, and I felt crazy doing it, honestly, but I just felt like I knew that this is like what I, where my path was going. This is what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and when I listened to that voice, I felt like um, things started to fall into place that I could have never imagined starting out. Um, so it's almost literally like taking that leap of faith, I think is important when you know in your gut that what you're doing is, is needs to be done. Um, I'll tell you a quick story too. I wanted to, it came to mind a little bit ago or when you were just talking about that, but, um, I think it's really important for people to spend time to figure out what it is that they really want to do. And that took about two years before I even started the company. Um, and it was really about that two years was really about self-discovery. It's, it was about like, what am I really passionate about? what drives me. And it, it takes time to really understand what that is. Um, and don't be afraid to take that time. Also, don't be afraid to work for somebody else. I think with starting a company, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have the ability to uh, work for myself and, and hopefully employ other people and, and grow the company. But having worked for somebody else was critically important for me to understand how business works and what are good systems to have in place. What are some of the questions you asked yourself during that period of self-discovery? I think it's important. So a few questions that I asked were, what am I actually good at? <laughs> um, and that came down to, and, and I, I did a number of tests, the like personality tests, a whole bunch of different tests. I, I, um, but I was really trying to figure out like, what, what am I good at? What really, what do I like to do? Um, and the things that I like to do were very different than what I'm doing. For example, I took up sewing as a, as a hobby. I still really like to sew. Um, very different than what I'm doing now. But what I discovered through just like 
taking up this hobby of sewing was I really loved the idea of coming up with an idea and focusing on how it can be um, put into the real world and just seeing something that come from go from an idea to like a real thing that was usable for somebody else to use. I really like the idea of creating something that people found valuable um, and that they could do something with. So it was really important for me to, if I did a business, for me to create something that would have a lasting impact and, and be valuable outside of just how much people pay for it. Um, I also um, realized that I associated entrepreneurship with the tech industry. Um, and what I found was that it was really hard for me to um, want to be an entrepreneur because I, I, I was not... Um, I was not connected to solving problems in an online or virtual world when there were so many fundamental problems in the real, real world. Um, and so I, I really disconnected from the, the title or the, um, yeah, the title of entrepreneur because of the fact that I wanted to do something that was real world focused. So when, you know, climate tech came out, um, I think it was like a good bridge for me because um, it allowed me to do the problems that I felt were the most important for me, um, but still it allowed me to be okay with this idea of calling myself an entrepreneur. What was the last thing you sewed for yourself? So <laughs> I sew blouses. <laughs> so um, that's kind of my key. I, hopefully and, and in, a, in a future world, I might, you know, uh, allow, I, I've only sewed for myself, my friends and my family. Um, but, you know, maybe making a line of blouses in the future of, um, from sustainable materials um, or recycled materials for, for the general public, that would be a really interesting and, and cool thing to do for me. Um, but right now, I'm, I'm still focused on Olica Minerals right now. So, But that's, that's something I'd, I'd love to do, I think, in the future. <laughs> well, I'm the son of a seamstress, and my 13-year-old daughter loves to sew. Wow. We bought her a sewing we bought her a sewing machine and she doesn't use it. She said, look, I like using my hands. She makes skirts and stuffed animals for herself and friends and family and everything. She said, it just helps me relax and think. I love it. I love that. So it keeps her hands busy. Yeah. And honestly, I think that that might be the future of, I mean, we're talking about the future of water currently, but the future of fashion in general. And we, we all kind of know um, the issues with the sustainability in, in the fashion industry um, and how I think we do need to go back to um, being more like sewing our own clothes, being closer to the um, the material, the clothing that we wear, being able to, to patch it up and and fix it and, and make our own things. So I, I actually would love to see more of that in the future. I'm just going to pitch an idea here that I've been thinking about. So I mentioned being the son of a seamstress. You know, back in the '90s, there were a lot of home sewing organizations, especially here in the Dallas area. And all that got shipped overseas to Vietnam, Thailand, et cetera. But to your point, I would love to see perhaps a gig economy opportunity here where especially women, but not only women, have the opportunity to become home sewers again and yeah. perhaps find a way to re-engage and, you know, create and make locally. Yeah. And I, I actually think that that might be, um, I think there's a number of companies that are looking to do that um, in the future where they um, allow for home seamstress to be the ones making the clothes as opposed to um, it being like made in a, in a, in a factory or um, in a large manufacturing company overseas. So hopefully that, that does come to pass. You know, this problem really resonated with me during COVID because I'm not sure about you, but you know, I have the luxury of working from home, 
but quote unquote, many essential workers didn't. And I thought to yeah. myself, what would be a way to empower women and allow them to work from home, raise families, et cetera. And perhaps, you know, starting these small home, home sewing organizations would be one way to allow that. That is an idea. That is an idea. I could see that. I could see that. Now, earlier you mentioned gut feeling. Gut feeling to me sounds like intuition. I once heard intuition described as, well, prayer is you speaking to God. Intuition is God speaking to you. But not to be religious about it, but how did you decide to go with your intuition? Yeah, I, I, I do. I, mean, I It's hard to, honestly, it's hard to say um, anything without feeling like I'm probably being religious or spiritual, but I, whether, whether, whatever your religion is, I do think that like, there is this like higher power, I think that speaks to us and we could speak to it. Um, and I, I guess that's like a core belief for me. Um, and I, I think that we all have feelings in ourselves that, you know, this is the right way to go or, and, and it can be very small. It, it doesn't even have to be like, this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life. It can be, um, you should do this or like open this, or I should really explore this particular topic. Um, or even, I, even clubhouse was really big. Um, in the latter part of 2020 getting on a clubhouse call and just opening, opening the app. And then just by being there, being a part of a conversation, um, that's actually how I met, um, Shante Harris, who um, helps run the Venture for Climate Tech program, which was the first accelerator that I did and, and was able to get grant funding for the company through that. But it was very serendipitous. A lot of a lot of the early days of the company, it felt like things were happening um, that I could not control. And I, I want to say that that's probably something that you'll see a pattern with a number of entrepreneurs or a number of different people who are um, starting their path onto like what they want to do. Um, I think at first it starts with, you have to be very honest with yourself. You have to figure out who are you and what are you, like we're all put on this earth to do something. We all have a purpose. Um, I think you have to spend time to figure out what that is. And then once you're, once you're strong enough or courageous enough or fearless enough to be who that person is in the real world and go after what you feel like is the most true and authentic version of you had what whatever that the calling that you're being called to do when you're courageous enough to go after that calling i think you'll you'll see that things just start to come into place like things just start to happen for you to affirm the fact that you're on the right path have you always been fearless no <laughs> to be honest i've i've been very risk averse um most of my life um and i've i've also felt like i've um a lot of what I've done in the past has been me doing what other people told me I should be doing. Um, even doing, you know, I, I, my background's in math, civil engineering, um, with a concentration in water resources and environmental engineering. And I'm very happy um, that I chose that. But I grew up not really knowing what an engineer was. I, I, the only two successful careers that I saw were doctor and lawyer. I really didn't understand anything outside of doctor and lawyer. Um, I didn't know that other people had careers outside of that and they could be successful. Um, and so the idea of being an engineer was actually one, I, I ended up getting a scholarship for it, but um, it was like kind of a push from my parents, uh, specifically my dad, I guess, who told me to go in that direction. Um, but, and originally I said, I don't know if I want to do this. I have no idea what this is. Um, and then he kind of encouraged me. So I ended up doing it, but 
a lot of my decisions in the past had been what people felt like I should be doing. And I think on this journey of really figuring out who I am and what I really want to do, it was allowing myself to let go of what other people think I should be doing with my life, which is really hard. That was a, a big obstacle for me. And once I got over that, then I kind of built up the courage um, to take the next step, which ended up being um, exploring this entrepreneurship journey, then figure out how I'm going to pay for this and, and all of those things. And, and things worked out from there. Um, but I think it's just being fearless enough to take the first step helps. And once you um, get positive feedback after that first step, then taking the next step and taking the next step. Um, so I'm, I'm only fearless enough to take that next step. <laughs> well, I usually save this advice question till the end, but let's imagine right now someone's listening and they're on the precipice of taking that next step. What kind of advice would you give them? Um, I think if you don't be afraid to fail, I think that was also another um, really important lesson. Sarah Blakely also says this a lot, and she's somebody that I, I also look up to. Um, but she was encouraged by her father at the time um, to don't be afraid to fail. And then he would also ask, you know, what did you fail at today? Um, and I thought that was really powerful. It was really powerful for me to hear because part of being so risk averse or why people are so risk averse is because they don't want to fail and they associate um, failure with being final um, and that you can't come back from that. Um, as opposed to realizing that failure is part of any process. Failure is just a step on the journey to getting to success. Um, so I think once you get over the fact or just anticipate that you probably will fail um, and, and that might be a good thing, then you can, you can have the confidence to take that step, that next step, because you realize that it doesn't matter what happens from here. What matters is that I'm moving in the direction that I know is right for me. Would you be open to sharing a recent failure? <laughs> a recent failure. Wow. How many failures have I had? Um, there's a few. So I guess I'll, I'll give a few and then <laughs> you can choose which ones uh, resonate. Um, but one would be, you know, being offered um, to an accelerator. So there is, you know, part of this entrepreneurship journey is, is deciding who you get money from, who you don't take money from. Um, and there was an opportunity that we received to get a hundred thousand for 5% or 7% of our company, um, which might be a great deal for, you know, somebody, um, it might not be the best deal for others. We decided to pass on that, um, which felt like, why did I do that? <laughs> why did I not take this money? Um, I think that was something that right now might feel like a failure, quote unquote, but I think what we're trying to do is position ourselves to go after a goal that we have in our heads and um, allow things that might not align with our initial goal to um, to go away, I guess. Um, so that's something. Another thing is, I would say, we didn't get um, a grant opportunity that we applied for. Um, and there's a number of different grants also available for, for people in the space, um, whether it's a federal grant, um, there's also scholarship or not scholarships, but grants that are um, funded by private institutions. Um, so that's also great to know. I always go after non-dilutive funding if you can. Um, but we didn't get that grant. Um, and it was kind of a, a blow to, to myself at the time. Um, but all of these not getting a grant is also a learning opportunity to figure out what do we need to do to get it the next time. 
Um, so in that process, we've learned kind of what other people have done or, or what uh, consultants we can potentially bring on board to help us better our application or make our application stronger next time. Um, and then also too that um, not everybody gets this grant. And so it makes it, it makes you want to work even harder to get it. And when you get it, I think it'll, it'll mean much more once we get it the next time, hopefully if we get it the next time. I really appreciate you sharing those. Let's move from failures to optimism. Let's fast forward. You have a magic wand. It's 2030. Publication of your choice, Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Forbes, Fast Company, you pick it. We'll write a headline about Olicon Minerals. What would you like it to read? Um, I would I would like it to read that um, uh, that water is available and cheaper than ever. And um, we've helped with uh, the supply chains of the future <laughs> or, or that um, we have finally uh, reached 100% renewables and that um, Olica Minerals has, has helped with bringing manufacturing local um, and how what we're doing is making the quality of life for the people that we serve so much better because of the fact that they can have access to water in a way that they haven't before and they can source their raw materials without having to rely on long shipping times, um, mines that cause a lot of carbon <laughs> emitted to the atmosphere. Um, there's a lot more local, we've, we've increased the strength of our local economy. I love that vision of increasing the strength of a local economy. Earlier, you said something regarding the importance of climate change. If we're to strengthen or make the fight against climate change stronger, how can you how do you suggest people join the effort i think there when we think about shifting over to a sustainable or more sustainable way of doing things that means that every single part of the economy needs to be changed over so every single person has a skill set and i think you first have to start with what what do you know how to do what are you good at and how can what you know how to do be more sustainable um and, and, and that looks different for a number of different people, whether it's the tech industry, I think the idea of going virtual is still very valuable. And so not, even though that's not something that I can connect with, um, being able to create technologies for people to have those virtual experiences is important because we don't know what the future holds as far as like um, how much access we have to land and how much access we have to um, traveling to a number of different places that we have access to today. Um, or even seeing the world the way that we do today, what is that going to look like um, 50 years from now? So there, there's still a lot of opportunities outside of what we're seeing in the energy sector, the water sector. Um, there, there's a lot of different things that need to be changed that have not been changed yet. So start with where you are, I would say first, um, and, and figure out what are the obstacles keeping what you're doing from being more sustainable. Well, Lacey, I think start with where you are is a great place to end. I really appreciate your time today and look forward to your continued success with Olicon Minerals. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email btu at nexuspmg.com 
or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.